Well, welcome again. Those who are just joining us, maybe online, maybe you just logged in, welcome. Um, Here is the gathering of Hope Bible Fellowship. We're thrilled to have you in person with us, and those who may be joining online, we're glad that you would join us online. At this time, if there are children who would like to go to our children's ministry, they can exit right out the back. You'll see a whole group of people that are leaving right now. And they, uh, they're not running out because it's time for me to preach. They're going to children's ministry, and we're excited that they're going to be there uh, and get to hear um, the Word of God, a lesson at their age level, um, which is, I think, a really valuable thing. So I'm excited that we get to offer that kind of a ministry. Go ahead and open your Bibles or whatever device you look up Scripture on to Hebrews chapter 2. That's where we're going to be camped out this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. So occasionally... Not as much as I used to, but occasionally during the week I will listen to sermons. Uh, I will listen to sermons by other pastors in other places. Um, sometimes it's somebody you may have heard of online. Uh, sometimes it's somebody you will never hear of um, uh, unless you hear me talk about them. Right? Uh, I listen to. Sometimes I'll listen to people I know, friends. Sometimes people I don't know. But anyway, this week, this past week, I was listening to a sermon uh, by a, a, a new pastor in another state. And he was speaking, and, and as he was speaking to the whole church, he turned to speak specifically to the teenagers in the audience. And I don't know if my mind is a little more tuned to that now that I'm speaking at a youth camp this summer or what, but he t- turned to teenagers in the audience, and he said, if you follow Jesus, teenagers, everything is going to work out. Now, I have a lot of problems with that statement because he put zero qualifications on it. He put zero qualification on it. He didn't explain what the working out might entail or what the working out might look like. And he left the impression with these, these teens that if you just follow Jesus, your whole life is going to work out. Okay? Because that's how they hear it. Even if that's not what he meant fully, that's what they hear. Now, the issue there. I'm getting somewhere. I'm not just trying to pick on somebody, okay? But the issue there is that life doesn't work out in the way you necessarily think it will or the way you think it should. How many of us can think of times in our life where life definitely did not work out the way we thought life was going to work out? I, if you had told me six years ago, seven years ago, that eventually I would be living and preaching in Dixon, Illinois... I would probably not have believed you. When I lived in Ashton, (laughs) I wouldn't have believed that I'd be living and preaching in Dixon. When I lived in Iowa, I didn't know where Dixon, Illinois was, right? Uh, You know, I I just wouldn't have believed it. Life doesn't uh, work out the way uh, that we want it to. So it's very dangerous to make a statement like something like that and just let it float because students, and I'll say adults too, when they hear that statement, what they do is, oh, if I follow Jesus, everything's going to work out. And so they're like, okay, I follow Jesus. And then they look around at their lives and they look around at the world around them and they see all their problems in their lives. They see everything going on and they say, hey, you told me that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was the answer to all this. So why are there all these problems still going on? Maybe you've heard someone ask a question like this to you before. Of course our message is that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the answer to everything. 
I mean, that's the answer we give to anyone for the problems in the world, right? The answer is, the, the answer to all the problems is actually Jesus. It's the gospel. But what are we to do when they ask us, hey there, friend, coworker that's trying to talk to me about Jesus. They ask you, hey there, friend. If this is true, what you're saying about Jesus being the answer to all that, and you're saying Jesus already for, uh, died for sin on the cross in my place for my sin, then why are all the problems still here? If Jesus is in control and if he's the answer, why are there so many problems in the world still today? And this is a little bit of the issue that the author of Hebrews is actually he's addressing in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. He, he's going to say some things in there that are going to help us to answer that in our own hearts, right? Because first, those questions, they, they rear up in our own hearts. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Let's read together. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand. Lord Jesus, as we come to hear you proclaim through your word, as we... Uh, as we come and we look and we, and we say, Lord, what does this mean? Help us understand. Help our hearts understand. Help me be clear in my explanations, clear in my applications and my language. God, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease. This is about you. It's for you, Jesus. Help our hearts understand. Help my heart first to understand. And be clear with those who hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's a lot here in such a short passage, and as we have found out, that's pretty much true in every passage in the book of Hebrews. It's just dripping, okay? And it's impossible to cover everything there is to cover in every, uh, every verse in one sermon because uh, books and books have been written expounding uh, on, on the book of Hebrews. But as we begin in verse 5, as we begin in verse 5, we can see the author resuming the line of thought from chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, in how Jesus is superior to the angels. Remember, we talked a couple of weeks ago, he gives this long argument of why Jesus and how Jesus is superior to the angels, to some people who might have been tempted to think the angels were maybe better. And so he gives this long, and now, now after he's given that long argument, he steps away to talk about something, and then he kind of comes back to that sort of line of thought. But as we move along, we see that God has a purpose for humanity. God has a purpose for humanity. Uh, the author says in verse 5 
that it was not to angels that the world to come would be subjected. So we, what I want to do is I kind of want to just peel this apart and say, so in verse 5 we see, it says that, that it was not to angels that the world to come was subjected. Okay? So we have to understand at the beginning here in verse 5, what we're looking at, we're looking at the subjection of the world to come Okay, spoiler alert, that's going to be subjected to Jesus, okay? Uh, just for future, uh, as we get on in the sermon, just kind of an early spoiler alert, we're, we're going to be talking about Jesus ruling the, and having the world, the future world, the world to come subjected to him. But what the author is going to do is he's going to start out, to get there, he's going to start out with a quote from the Old Testament about man. So we can see God had a, had a specific purpose for man in man's creation. So before he moves on to talk about Jesus, to get us there, he takes us back, as this author often does, to the Old Testament. He takes us back to the Old Testament. I saw a graphic. I didn't bring it. I should have brought it. Maybe I'll bring it next week. But I have this graphic. Maybe I can post it on our Facebook or something. Uh, and it's, it's a colored arcs of every time the Bible references itself. And it's this beautiful image of all of these arcs back and forth throughout the, the scripture of it referencing itself. It's, it's amazing. But anyway, he starts out, if we look at verse 6, what is man? What is man? That's the first main point if you're taking notes. What is man? The citation here in verse 6 there, beginning in verse 6 there, the citation is from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, which says this, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So what's going on in this psalm, okay, in this psalm that is being quoted, being cited by the author of Hebrews, is in this psalm, David is marveling that God, um, that though God made man as less than God, but man was also given dominion over the world. God put man on the earth to rule the physical earth, to tend the crops, tame the animals. This is the story back in the first three chapters of Genesis at creation. That God, was put on, or that God put man on earth and gave him dominion uh, over the world. And that's important because there's, there's a problem that has sprung up with that, right? Namely, sin. God put man on earth to have dominion, and man screwed it up. And he did what God specifically said not to do, and sin entered the world. Now, the writer speaks of humanity collectively as one person. So he speaks of humanity collectively as one person, so don't get thrown off when that happens. But it says, it tells us that God placed humanity uh, a, little lower, a little lower than the angels. Well, what we need to understand about the angels that we talked about two weeks ago, and if you missed that message, that sermon, you may want to go back and listen to the podcast uh, to catch up, but angels were not given dominion over this world. In fact, we, I don't, we don't ever really read about that. And they won't rule the world to come. In fact, there's this amazing verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 is where it is. This amazing verse, I think we read it, and, and <laughs> we read it in its context and when it's set in there, but if you look at that verse, it's pretty amazing 
when we're talking about the world to come, we're talking about the relationship between God, between angels and man. And 1 Corinthians 6, 3 says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And you just, you look at that and it kind of jumps out off the page at you almost. And like, wow. So what, what this uh, ought to, and I, I'm not going to make a bunch of statements about that verse, okay, because we don't have, I'm not, I'd have to go through with you all the context and everything. Um, so I don't want us to get stuck in that. But what I want us to pull out of that and understand is this. I want us to understand and recognize the distinctive glory and dignity of human beings. To be created imago Dei, which means in the image of God. So to be created in the image of God is to say that all human life has dignity and inherent value. This is why we are, as Christians, okay, predominantly pro-life. This is why we protect life. It's why we pray for places like Ukraine, that lives would be spared. It's why we seek to help uh, where we can, those who are in need. It's not political, okay? I know we, when I say well, pro-life, everybody immediately thinks political. I said this uh, last week, too. It's not political. It's biblical. Michael Kruger, in his commentary on this passage, writes this. There's rich irony in God's plan for humanity. We are designed to rule over angels, and yet it was an angelic being, Satan, who persuaded Adam and Eve to follow him and rebel against God. Instead of judging and ruling over angels, the first humans subjected themselves to angels. Instead of rebuking Satan, they listened to him. And the ultimate result was that God's design for the world was profoundly broken. People will tell you that the problem with the world is lack of education or bad cultural influences or economic inequality. And if those things were sorted out, the world would be a better place. Don't we hear that? Like if we could just sort out all those social issues, the world would be a better place. But in all of those scenarios, the problem is still there as long as we are still there. The problem's still there as long as we're still there. there. It's not just that Adam sinned. His corruption has passed down to all humans after him. In short... And you might want to write this one down because what he says in there is, is, when he, is amazing, what Kruger says there. In short, you and I are the problem. You and I are the problem. And if we're the problem, then we cannot be the solution. Education, government programs, cultural change are not enough. Those things can do good, but they're not enough because they are human solutions. No, we cannot save ourselves cannot save ourselves because we're the problem and the problem can't very well fix the problem can't the problem can't fix itself okay do you ever take your car do you ever have a problem with your car air conditioner didn't work or uh you had a bad uh transmission and you just sat there and let it sit there long enough and the problem fixed itself? No. That's not how things work. The problem can't fix itself. We are the problem. That's the problem with humanity. Made in the image of God, originally made and put here for dominion, but sin entered the world, 
and we're the problem. Point number two, though, what do we see in verse 9? Well, in the verse, we do see Jesus. We do see him, namely Jesus. We see Jesus, the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What he does is he takes this psalm passage that he's been quoting, and he maps that onto or applies that to Jesus Christ. Jesus represents all of humanity in his incarnation and his crucifixion. Now, those are big words. Let me break it down. His incarnation simply means that he became human and dwelled among us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the Advent, when he comes and dwells among his people. He also represented humanity in his death on the cross, the crucifixion. Now, if you think back, and and I've slept since then, so it's hard for me to remember, but I, I preached through the book of Philippians a few months ago, might feel like eons ago to you at this point. But I preached through the book of Philippians and we came to this great hymn of the humiliation of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. And I think that is a, a kind of a natural connection here. And what that says in verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2 is, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of of God the Father. You see, today, as we're out um, in our daily lives, hopefully, trying to talk about Jesus with people, evangelizing, we don't have a lot of trouble convincing people that Jesus was human, that he was a man. People sort of We'll take, today, they will sort of take some of that for granted. Yeah, I mean, okay, so there's historical records of a guy named Jesus being executed by Romans, okay? They'll, they'll, they'll kind of, you don't have to go real far to convince him that there was a human named Jesus, right? They'll, they'll kind of go along with that. People today, though, struggle to believe that he is God. People struggle to believe that he is God. But in the days of the writing of the book of Hebrews, there were people who had a lot of trouble believing that he was human. The Gnostics in particular, a group called the Gnostics, which starts with a G, by the way, uh, were especially skeptical of this idea that Jesus could be a man like us. Kruger points out that uh, they didn't see how someone who was divine could take on the limitations of human flesh. But by becoming human, he was able to taste or experience death for everyone. See, Jesus came as a man, but that did not mean that in any way the angels were better. He lowered himself to living among us and dying for our sins, taking our sin upon himself, but he was still God. He was still the Lord, and he would still have all things subjected to him with nothing Nothing 
being outside of his control. Nothing being outside of his control. When we talk to people about Jesus, they'll go, okay, yeah, so he was a man, he was a good teacher maybe, which by the way, he can't be both a good teacher and not God because he claimed to be God and if he claimed to be God and wasn't God, then that would make him not a good teacher, right? So they, they see and they say, okay, so he was a man, but they have a struggle getting to understand and believe and be convinced that he was God, largely because at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And that's point number three, if you're following along, is at present... Right now, while we're looking around, we don't yet see with our eyes everything in subjection to Him. This is a difficult point for a lot of people, especially those who are asking the question that I posed in the beginning of the message. Hey, you're saying everything is going to be subjected to Jesus that He won, so why does it look like chaos around us? In verse 8, we see that the world to come will be completely subjected to Jesus the Son. But it's not until verse 9 where he names this Son as Jesus. He identifies the one who will one day be over all as Jesus the Son. This is where it becomes clear that the author is taking this psalm and applying it to Jesus, seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of it. Al Mohler, in in commenting on this, he wrote this, the author wants us to read scripture according to its internal storyline and see Christ as the fulfillment and climax of the story. In other words, the author wants us to read the Bible as biblical theologians. The author wants us to read the Bible as biblical theologians, which means that our first, our first principle of biblical theology here, our first principle of reading and studying and interpreting the Bible is the Scripture interprets Scripture. The Bible interprets Bible. First, we've got to start there, right? Before we go to uh, any other place, we've got to start with the Bible interpreting the Bible. An incredible point of note here as that this rule, this everything being subjected to Jesus and the world to come, that this rule will be shared by believers, which you can see if you were to skip ahead to verses 12 and 13, and you can see that there, but also in other places in Scripture. Again, reading the Bible as good biblical theologians, right? Letting Scripture interpret Scripture. If we look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, it says, And the kingdom and the dominion of the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And in Revelation 2, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's what the Spirit said to the churches. 
The world to come is the perfect, ideal future world. It's a heavenly country where the Lord Jesus reigns for eternity. Hebrews eleven fourteen through 16. It says, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, have, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In Hebrews 11, verse 40, so you skip a few verses ahead. Says, Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. See, the work of Christ, the work of Christ, his incarnation and crucifixion, his life, death, and resurrection, actually inaugurates the world to come. Inaugurates this King, the kingdom of God, right? It inaugurates the world to come, which will be completely sub- subjected to Jesus. And we get, to, we get to share in that. And I'm excited about eternity. And I want to take a lot of people with me. But we see it as beginning, and it's the beginning of what theologians will refer to as the already, not yet. The already, not yet. Jesus has already won the victory, but we do not yet have his return, his second coming, and eternal reign realized here on earth. It's already, so he has already won the victory. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but we do not see here on earth the realization of that until his return. So we call it the already, not yet. We live in the already, not yet. The kingdom of God is here because Jesus, when he came, what? He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. He inaugurated. He said, hey, it's, it's here. But then when we read this, verses like this and we see that it's not like we still see all the problems. We still see all the perceived chaos. It still looks like it's just a mess and there's darkness and sin all over the place because we live in that already but not yet space where he has placed his people, his church, to spread the truth of what? The kingdom of God in the gospel. That, ho- that, that those who will believe We'll hear the gospel and trust in Christ. And there will be that many more people in the kingdom when it is realized at his return. Let me see if I can help you out with this a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47 says, Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is what the Bible refers to as 
the last Adam, you may hear the second Adam or the second man. The second Adam undoes the work of the first Adam. Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, the second man, he fulfills the task of rule that was originally given to the first man, Adam, that Adam failed in because of sin. Moeller words it this way, Jesus represents the ideal man who bears God's image rightly and exercises dominion over the cosmos. The ideal man who bears God's image rightly instead of in the way of the first Adam who was put here, given dominion, made in the image of God, but did not bear his image rightly uh, because he sinned. And Jesus has no sin. But Adam sinned, and sin entered the world through him, and so from that point on, humanity has a sin nature. And this Jesus, who is superior to all things, including angels, this Jesus is worthy when we read that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the, su- uh, the suffering of death, we might think for a minute like this. We might think, wasn't he always worthy of glory and honor as the second person of the Trinity? And we would be correct in that assessment. Yes, absolutely, and amen. So here, though, when it says he was crowned with glory and honor, this is not simply because he is God, but it's because he's fulfilled the task of Messiah. He's fulfilled his task as Messiah, and that messianic task was fulfilled, was to suffer and die for the sin of man. To suffer and to die for the sin of man. And then we see, we see in verse 9, It says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And we get to the last part of that verse, and it says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's your last point. Perfect life. Jesus lived a perfect life. That's so hard for me to, it's hard for me to imagine because we all probably sinned 10 times before we got here this morning, right? Like in our fallen nature and our our propensity to lean towards making the wrong choice, the sinful choice. And, And Jesus lived a life with no sin. He didn't fight over a toy with his younger brothers. He never stole something. He never lusted after a woman. He lived a perfect, sinless life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice, a sufficient sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice, dying a death in the place of sinners tasting death for everyone, taking the wrath of God that was due our sin because all sin must be paid for. All sin must be judged or paid for, right? All sin must be judged. 
And he died, taking our sin upon himself, and rose three days later. A substitute, and as the Bible calls him, the first fruits, the first fruits. His resurrection was the first fruits of the resurrection of God's followers one day. So we see that God offers both the punishment for sin and the salvation from sin. Because as I said earlier, sin must be judged. There must be blood. Something has to die for sin. And Jesus took the judgment for that sin of those who would believe in him. This, friends, is grace. This is grace. And it's free to you, but it costs Jesus his life. Either you get God's wrath for your sin, or in trusting in Jesus, it was put upon Christ on the cross. So my call to you today is really the same call that Jesus gives in the Bible when he's doing his public ministry. It is repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your sin and trust the gospel today. That's the call, the call of Christ. Repent of your sin and trust in his perfect life. Sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross in your place for your sin taking your sin upon himself and getting the wrath of God that you were supposed to get rightfully and justly because of your sin on you and dying all the way dead, no heartbeat, no breath, dead. Put in the ground in a tomb and three days later rose to life by the power of God because he's God. Because he's perfect. And when he rose it inaugurates, it, it, it's the first fruits, right? It's like, hey, it's time now. And one day we're going to realize this, we're going to realize his reign when the dead in Christ shall rise, when he returns. Let me ask you this question as we kind of start to march towards the end this morning. I mean, the end of the message, not the end of, well, I'm, we're going to be closer to the end of time also at the end because we're always one day closer right but as we move this way in what ways think about this in your own mind in your own heart in what ways do you feel the tension of this already but not yet playing itself out in your life in what ways do you feel that do you see that tension manifest itself in the world around you as you look around and you see the already, not yet, you see people loving Jesus, following Jesus, but then you see all the issues in the world and you feel that tension. And we live in a, we live in a place in that, in that tension. It almost feels like living on, living on a guitar string, right? It's just real. If you don't play guitar, you don't know this, but the, the strings are pretty tense. <laughs> They're pretty tight, all right? That's why when they break, they go bing. What things cause you to doubt the truth and trustworthiness of the gospel and the work of the last Adam of Jesus? Can you see how this passage helps you to, to overcome those fears and those doubts? The idea of this already but not yet and living in that tension. The understanding that Jesus became human so that he could experience death on your behalf. 
So when we're tempted to look around us and despair because we believe, we believe that Jesus is the answer, and yet we see all the problems, this perceived chaos around us, the question for us that I believe we've got to settle in our heart is when we see all that going on, when we look around is, will we rest in Jesus? Will we rest in the already but not yet kingdom of God, trusting that, hey, Jesus has won. And yeah, I see all kinds of crazy stuff going around. And let that encourage us and drive us to be more intentional in our ministry in the world. Because we believe that it's Jesus already won. We're not yet seeing it realized on earth. Uh, We see glimpses of it though, don't we? When we come together and we worship and we hear the word proclaimed, we pray together when we serve one another, when the church gathers, we see glimpses. We see glimpses of the kingdom, don't we? And, and you know, I just, I don't, I don't have a verse for this, okay? But when we see those glimpses of the kingdom, it's like a little gift from God to remind us what we're doing here. Remind us that there's a better day coming when we won't have all this chaos and sin and darkness. A day when he'll wipe every tear away and he will set all things right, make all things new. So when you're tempted to despair, because though you believe Jesus is the answer, you see all the kingdoms, will you rest in the already but not yet? I want to invite the musicians to go ahead and come forward as we prepare to sing our last song. But what I want to challenge you to do as you go home is to spend some time today thinking about how you might articulate the person and work of Christ to someone who's never heard about Jesus or doesn't believe. How you might articulate that. How you might explain that to someone. Hey, Have you ever thought about what Jesus did while on earth or who he really is? That's a question you could ask someone. Have you ever ever thought about Jesus? About like what he did on earth or why he became a big deal? I mean, there's churches. Look, I looked up this week. I looked up churches in Dixon online. It took me to the Dixon City website, okay, which, by the way, they have our address wrong. Um, the address they listed, I don't even know where that is. So anyway, um, I counted 39 churches in this town of 15,000 people, 39, probably not even all on there. Some of those churches that are on there may not exist anymore. Okay. But let's say 39, 39 churches. So to think to someone, Hey, have you ever wondered why there's so many churches they call themselves Christian churches. They talk about Jesus. And look, I understand some of them. They don't, they, don't, they don't teach the true gospel. I get it. I understand that, okay? I'm not telling you to go there, okay? Please don't. Please stay here, all right? But, but I'm just saying using that as a talking point. Hey, have you ever... Hey, coworker, Have you ever wondered why so many churches got started in the name of Jesus? You ever wonder what that's all about? So I want you to spend some time thinking about how you might articulate to the person you work with or, or a friend or family member what the work of Christ 
um, what the work of Christ was all about. See, Christ's superiority in all things can help us avoid spiritual drift when we trust his word and his work and we understand that though we don't see it all played out right now, that all things are subjected to him. There are many spiritual realities that we don't yet see with our physical eyes. And there, you know, we were talking about spiritual drift last week. And it's not a coincidence that this passage is right after it, is it? It's not a coincidence. God planned it that way. There's many spiritual realities we don't yet see with physical eyes. The question is, do we trust him as we live as a part of the already, not yet, kingdom of God. Jesus is good, and Jesus reigns, and one day, all this perceived chaos in the world, I say perceived because the actual definition of chaos involves that there's no one in control. So that's why I say it's perceived chaos. We look at it, we see it as chaos, but there is someone in control. His name's Jesus. And the question for you is, Will you trust him? Will you trust him until the day when he returns and sets all things right? Would you stand and pray with me? Lord God, as we come to this time of of, uh, just worshiping in song again, this time of, of really of decision, God, because we've heard your word proclaimed, we've heard the truth of your word, and now the opportunity for us to respond is before us. Will we respond in faith, trusting in you, trusting in the gospel, trusting in your word, taking you at your word, or will we reject it? Or will we live ambivalent lives, passively just ignoring it going on and not letting it affect our day-to-day? Or will we respond in faith, repenting of any unbelief in our lives, believing the true gospel that in pressing in to you we would avoid drifting away that we would avoid feeling like the world is in complete and utter chaos because we know and we trust that though we don't see it with our eyes you are ruling and reigning And we will one day, as your followers, get to reign with you. Get to be in eternity with you in heaven. That you will make all things new. That you will wipe away all the darkness, all the sin. We thank you, Jesus, for the cross. For your death as a sacrifice, as a substitute for us. That you rose. Help us trust you with our whole lives, our whole being. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's sing a final song together.